And I spent a little bit of time in jail um, from just like being really unhealthy. Um, kind of got past that portion of my life and did a lot of self-healing. Hold up. <laughs> Let's talk about the jail. <laughs> yeah. Briefcast is brought to you by the Free Press Media and is recorded at the KMSU studios on the campus of Minnesota State University, Mankato. Uh, yes, Freepcast is back after a long hiatus. Um, apologies for that. Um, Freepcast was put on hold for a while because I was gone, didn't work at the Free Press. And now that I am back, happy to be back doing more Freepcasts. And uh, super happy to have our, as our first guest back, uh, Dana Sakilla of the 410 Project. Um, a lot of you in town probably, probably already know um, Dana and certainly know of her work at the 410. And um, in, in this episode of Freebcast, uh, we, we go a little bit deeper into who, who Dana is as a person um, and how she uh, got to be where, where she is. So uh, enough babbling for me. Uh, here's Dana. All right, we're here with Dana Sikila. Is it Sikila? Sikila? Sikila. Sikila? Sikila, I like that, but Sikila, <laughs> yes. This is how much I know you. I've written about you a dozen times, and I don't think I've ever asked you how to pronounce your last name. That's okay. So it's Sikila. Sikila. A lot of people think my uh, full name is Dana Sikila Murphy because that's my name on social media. I, I kind of did too for a while because <laughs> that's, I, would see, I would see that and uh, I learned later it was your dog. Yeah. Lovable. Rest in peace. Yes. Murphy. I know. What a the, cutie. The OG, the original Murphy. Let's let's talk about dogs. I love that. Now that you, I didn't even have that on my <laughs> list of questions, but um, <laughs> I, I'm a dog lover. You're a dog yep. lover. What do you have right now for dogs? Uh, I'm, oh, I'm the dog. Dog lady. Yes. So right now I have two Boston Terriers. I've, and since I've hit my adult life, which I don't know if I would, I don't know when that really started, but in my early 20s. I uh, got a young Boston Terrier, Murphy, so that's where all my, my social media and my marketing comes from, the Boston Terrier image and the name. And um, about five years ago, Murphy passed away um, just from being old, and I've uh, grown my household to have two other Boston Terriers, MJ and Pops, and um, they're kind of two different sections of, like, an old man and a young child put together, so they balance. And then I have a, a 16-year-old cat who is still uh, living which I did not think was gonna <laughs> be happening. I've had him since I was like 22, and now I'm 35. So he's how old? I think he's about 16 or wow. 17 years old. Yeah. So we should we should stop here and pause and just tell people who you are. Um, Dana is an artist in town, and she's the uh, are you the executive director of the 410 Project? Executive tell, tell director, are, director. Sometimes people have like a you know with 410 we're volunteer base, so you know I am in charge and I'm. But I am volunteer, so a lot of times if I say executive director, some people give me slack because it's not a paid job. Oh. And so I shouldn't be calling myself an executive director. Should be a paid I'm, job. I'm though. rolling my eyes Should for be those a paid that job. can't see me. Uh, yes. It's just something we've never really moved forward to. And I don't know. But yeah, so I just call myself director or, you know, the head of the 410 or head volunteer 
basically. So, so. tell people, um, I'm, I'm sure most people who will listen to this, they already know what the 410 Project is, mm-hmm. but if they don't, tell us what that is and how yeah. you got involved with it. Yeah, so the 410 Project is a volunteer-managed community art space located in downtown Mankato, right around all the bars and Polly Ice Pizza, and um, we've been in existence since 2003, which is really, when you think about it, a volunteer-managed space in any city big or small that's still sustaining for that long is really kind of a true test of community, I think, because again, no one's getting paid to be there and to pay the bills and keep things going. Um, And so we have an exhibition space. So we have um, visual art exhibitions every two and a half weeks. Uh, We have, tonight we're starting our um, monthly open mics that we collaborate with the English department here at MSU. We've done live music, we do youth and adult programming. So it's a very versatile space. Um, we don't just work with visual arts. We work with all mediums as well as all forms of advocacy as well. So we work with different um, other nonprofits uh, and other groups within the community as well, using art as some form of protest or um, or collaboration or community building. And um, so we do a lot of different things. We're very versatile. And again, it's an, a community-run space for the community of Southern Minnesota. And how did you get involved? In 2009, I was in my undergrad here at MSU in the art department, and uh, I had taken a front desk job at Cactus Tattoo, uh, which is, again, downtown Mankato Tattoo Shop. And at that time, Makiba Ish, who is the owner of Cactus, was currently running the 410 space. And so um, being a young artist and then kind of working with her at at, uh, Cactus, then learning about the 410, because before that, I didn't even know that was really a thing. Uh, downtown just because it wasn't really connected really to MSU at that time, yeah, how, even though it was started from MSU students. Was it just like a, three or four students got together and said, we want to have a gallery that's off campus? And yep, 100%. Yeah, so it was just three, <clears throat> yeah, three seniors that were soon to be graduating. Um, you know, and they were all, they were from different mediums. One was a painter, one was a photographer, and I think one was a sculptor, I think. And, uh, yeah, they were just really kind of wanting to stay in Mankato for a little bit, but there was no place outside of the university that they could really just kind of do whatever they wanted or, or, um, you know, have studio space to, Mm -hmm. you know, utilize however they want. So they just pulled their money together and rented a storefront downtown. Um, so the original address was 410 Front Street, which is right next to Rounders. Mm-hmm. I think right now it's Cato. What is it right now? It's like Cato Taco or something. It used to be oh, it's Burrito. That building. Yes, okay. it's that building. I've had the tacos. Yeah, so that is where the original 410 was, uh, and they built the dark room for photography and all this stuff. And they're there for about two years. Um, the landlord then basically was renting out the building underneath them, so they got out of there really fast. And luckily enough, the building down the street, 523 South Front Street, uh, where we're currently still reside, was just opening up because that business owner was shifting up the hill to a bigger um, building himself. And then those students just and faculty was also helping at the time, just kind of slid in there and um, built the gallery, built a bathroom on the main floor and just kind of went from there. But you didn't change the name to the 523 Project. No, people ask that. Um, and it's like, well, sometimes when you got something good, you kind of just have to stick with it. And then we always joke, like, 523 Project isn't as nice as 410 Project. So, Yeah, but yeah. the same ring as 410. 410 kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Um, so you got involved what year? 
2009. 2009, just as a volunteer. Just as a volunteer and um, kind of trying to help. Because like I said, there, I think I was in my senior or maybe my junior year or maybe I was the dual senior. I don't even remember anymore. Uh, um, in the art department here. So it was kind of like getting students back connected to the 410 and getting activated there and having shows or just like just acknowledging that it was a resource, I guess. And then in 2012, I was in grad school by then. Um, and Makiba had come to me one day and we were at work and she's just like, yeah, I think I'm done um, with the gallery. And, you know, she was running a business and wanting to have a personal life and I don't blame her at all. And and so she kind of just went down the list and was like, here are options. You know, maybe MSU could take it over. Maybe another independent person could take it over. Or then she's like, well, maybe you. And then I was like, well, no, that's not going to happen. Because um, I didn't know anything about running... I could barely pay my own bills for the house that I rented. You don't like it, so it's very odd to think that you can take over a whole another building and organ you know organization and manage that. Um, and I remember I've said this in other interviews. I remember talking to my mother about it, and right away her first instinct was like, "Nope, absolutely not. You don't know what you're doing." Blah blah. <laughs> And then sometimes when I hear things like that, it kind of irks me to do the opposite. Thanks, Does, Mom. It doesn't matter where they come from. And I, I credit my mother to everything I have to this day. Um, but, yeah, sometimes it's like it kind of sparks that challenge in me because I think I'm very challenge-driven um, still to this day. And to be like, I don't know, you know, you don't have an experience and you don't, I don't know what you're doing. And so I was like, well, maybe I can do this. And then just took over in 2012 and just kind of taught myself how to do things along the way. So at that point, was it a respected, like in the arts community, was it kind of a re- respected gallery space? I would say so. So were you afraid then of ruining it? <laughs> because you didn't I'm know still afraid you were doing of ruining it. In, in the green <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a lot of obligation there, right? Um, and a lot of people, I think, depend on the space for just accessibility to the arts and opportunities and engagement and growth and uh yeah still so at that time it's like obviously you know the the space wasn't as developed there wasn't any programming it was kind of this every once in a while they'd have some music in the back but it was mainly just the shows but the shows were a month long so there wasn't even as many shows going through so uh, a lot has been developed since 2012 um but yeah it was a lot to take on as someone you know my first year of grad school and just really confused as a human being in general at that time in my life hardly less having control of that and then trying to figure out how to, how to have control of something that really wasn't necessarily about me. It was about providing something to the community that I just kind of had to manage along the way. So it certainly has done well um, for as long as I've been paying attention. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what have you learned about yourself as you've, you know, as you've kind of steered this thing yeah. successfully? What have I learned about my personal self? Yeah. Um... Oh, man. I think, I don't know, like just basically growing up into in into a leader, I would say, um, through the, the 410. If I didn't have the 410, like I said, like I've n- I don't even know where I would be right now in my life um, if I would have said no to that opportunity. Um, who knows if I'd even be in the arts, uh, which is kind of scary to think. But I don't know. I think I really gained a, a really strong understanding of how, like, what my strengths are and how I lead and how to really be able to find that to to make to find it find it and define it and then how to I don't know just like own what you're good at and how to be successful and how to like be creative with what your life 
can be or like the pathway of your life it sounds you know because it's like I don't necessarily live I don't work a nine to five to pay my bills I have to be like hustling I'm an independent contractor to have shows in the 410 that's like we have to pull people in and if we want to grow and sustain that's a lot of independent work so I learned that type of work ethic that really you need to be working in the creative field unless you're working in a nine to five where you have that stability but I don't want to live that type of life and work that type of job so I've had to basically create this way of working and living to sustain the way that I want to and the 410 is really what helped me figure that out so you don't you're not getting paid to be at the 410 no so it's a it's is it a full-time are you there is like a full-time I would say full-time um I would say you know if we're going to put it into like hours but it's probably like a part-time job okay you know and it's not something that I count anymore I used to count hours and things um because I felt like I had to justify Mm -hmm. what I was doing with hours and now it's like now it's so integrated into my life it's not like, oh, well, this time I have to go to the four tanks, I have to work on this, this, and this. It's not like I have to go to the office to get my work done. It's just like part of my daily conversations and working and emails. It's not even seen as a separate thing anymore. Does that but, make sense? Yeah. So would you say that because you kind of took a chance and said yes, that that has opened up for you other opportunities? 100%. Tell me about that. I think in every, I think in every aspect of my life it really has because... You know, at that time, uh, I got I graduated grad school and was, you know, you get out of grad school, then you're like, what am I going to do? I didn't want to teach at that time. Um, and I knew I couldn't work at the tattoo shop because I wasn't making enough money. So then I had to go work at Taylor Court for two years. So then you're working this job that is not like, I don't know, like life fulfilling, which I think everyone needs to be working in some sort of fashion in that way, um, at least for me personally. And uh, just kind of like started spiraling like mentally and like self-worth wise. And, you know, you put forth all this time into an education and then you're, you're, you know, doing this. And I'm not saying like this is like the wrong way for other people to to go. But just for myself, it was like really disheartening. Um, And at the time I was running the 410, but I hadn't really taken that leap of like doing something outside of just what was already being done, you know. Um, And then... I had kind of hit uh, a little bit of a rock bottom and stuff like that. And I spent a little bit of time in jail um, from just like being really unhealthy. Um, Kind of got past that portion of my life and did a lot of self-healing. Hold up. (laughs) Let's talk about the jail. (laughs) Yeah. Because I I, I know you've been public about this and and you've written about it. Yep. Um, most people probably don't know that who are listening to this. So tell tell us about the jail. <laughs> yeah. So in my, I wouldn't even say since I was 19, probably 19, about 26, just like um, really healthy habits, substance abuse, things like that. And um, I think dealing with a, a lot of like negative emotional habits that came out through substances and um, I, I, you know, in and out of jail for several different reasons and not. And I think, I don't know, you go through things like that and then you're like, well, I'm not really going to talk about it or I'm not going to correct it. It'll just get better. And it wasn't getting better. And then I was 26 or 27 and I had to go back into jail for a couple weeks um, for something. And uh, and then you kind of go through that process of like, man, this is still happening. You know, and I think you have a little bit of like like click in the head like this, like if I'm going to actually set like do the things that I want to do and 
you know, prove to my family and, and all of these people that have like trusted me with like this, this, the 410. Cause like I said, I'd only been uh, in charge for about a year. I was still like messing up. And if I continued that, I, I felt like I was going to be letting a lot of people down. Not just like, oh, my mom and my dad, like a lot. And uh, so got out of that last situation and then totally um, turned my life around. I was sober for a couple of years and just really was like, you know what, I'm going to take this opportunity because I didn't want to move out of Mankato. Like I wanted to work in the arts, but there was no art jobs in Mankato. There's like two, unless you were a teacher. And, um, and so then I was like, okay, well, I have this space and nothing's really developed so I'll just like do my own thing. That's right. Like you can just like build programs and like shows and music. Like that's the thing, right? And I just taught myself how to do that. And then we just started building one program after the other and shortened our exhibitions and brought more artists in and started our youth mentorship program. And yeah, and just totally turned my life around, to be honest. And then that's when Project Bike had started was I think about two or some years after that kind of looking at what we can do as a space and myself as a leader that's very defined to me and very defined to the 410 um, within the idea of like grassroots advocacy and then the bike tour started and that started was two years affiliated with the gallery and that's now grown to a statewide known project so and, we were going to get to that in a minute yep. but let's now that you brought that up let's just get into the to the uh, project bike explain what that is you just, this is a summer thing where you yep take a bike tour around the state of Minnesota mm -hmm. collecting art? I'll let you explain. Yeah, so Project Bike, again, was a little bit of a brainchild in my head starting in 2013 or so. And then um, I had this idea, again, of kind of like, what can I do as a leader? And I was still kind of young. And I knew I didn't want to be a, a creative leader that was just sitting on a computer and in a meetings. And, oh, it's just that sounds not fun, even though I really like meetings now. Because uh, hopefully things happen from meetings. Um, yeah, and I would just looked at my skill sets, and it's, I just said, oh, I'm good at biking, and I'm, I'm really passionate about art, so let's combine those two things. So um, first year in 2015, I got a grant from Prairie Lakes, our regional arts council. Um, I got a little bit of money to um, basically buy a bunch of, like, GoPro cameras, and um, I had to buy a whole bike for touring. You know, and it was, my whole idea was like, oh, I'm going to tour around a portion of the state, kind of southern central of the state, went over to like the Rochester area. So that would be the southern eastern portion uh, and just interview artists along the way, like working in different areas from really rural and in bigger cities like Rochester and interview them in their studios or their homes or outside and then collect artwork from them that was then packaged up and then put on the back of a trailer that was connected to my bicycle. So then all the artwork collected rides through the whole tour and then back to Mankato and then there's an exhibition curated by all the or of all the artwork collected from this two week long bike ride and then I'm living off my bike so I'm I'm bike camping and squatting in people's houses and uh and yeah, I remember that first year I did this because I said, I told everyone I was going to do it. And then I got some money and then I was like, oh crap, now I for sure have to do it or else it's going to look like I'm backing out on things. And I had never toured before. Um, and I remember I drained my bank account. I had to buy a new bicycle. I had to buy all this equipment and all this traveling equipment. I think maybe when I got done, I had like, I don't know, $80 in my bank account like I had not because I was an adjunct here we make no money teaching adjunct at MSU and and I had taken time off to do this tour and um and then I went and did it and it was horrible 
<laughs> and uh, uh, you learn a lot about yourself touring on a bike by yourself in the middle of summer. So let me ask you, did, did, were you an avid biker before you did Project Bike? I was, but not to this extent. Like, you know, going on like short tours or mountain biking or playing bike polo. Yeah, but tra- like biking for eight hours a day. Oh, look, there you go. Eight hours a day uh, in 90 degree weather carrying actual weight, like all your clothes and your living thing, all, you know, everything you live with, and then a trailer behind you with weight on the trailer. That's something that no one ever does unless they're, you know, unless they're touring. And so I had like, never done that like, before. You didn't like practice like hauling heavy weights with your trailer at all? No, because be like. I had an artist residency right before that um, in Fergus Falls. So I was up there. And so I was doing a lot of like longer rides, but I didn't get my trailer until maybe a couple days before I left. And so, and it, was, it really wasn't even a thing because at that time you always think like you're invisible. Like, oh yeah, I can do this. I've bike distances, but... You never really, like, you underestimate how hard it is on you mentally and physically. And then especially when you're out there by yourself in the middle of nowhere, biking, then you're like, am I going the right direction? Am I going to get there on time? The sun's going down. I don't have cell service. I don't have, Like, that's that's a lot for one person's brain. And then you're hauling other people's artwork and trying to film everything on these really kind of not the best GoPros in the world. Again, this is 2015. And uh, part of it is you, you were you 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 do a documentary after. Yep. So after when we get back, done. we put together all this footage and um, True Facade, who's in town here, um, Ryan Sturgis. Uh, when I got back, basically I had all this GoPro footage and had no understanding of how to put that all together. You know, because this first year I just kind of went for it. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm jumping in here, um, and I'm going to problem solve along the way. And luckily, Ryan Sturgis was able to help me kind of clip all that GoPro footage together for like, I think it's like a seven minute long video that first. It almost looks like a, a video trailer for like a, big, a bigger feature, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that first year we had uh, the opening reception at the 410. And I think I had collected 12 pieces of artwork and they were like drawings or like little canvases with no frame. And I think the trailer weighed like an extra, maybe 12 pounds. It was like, it was literally nothing compared to what we ended up doing it towards the end. And then we had this little video, but you know, 80 some people, 80 to hundred people, uh, maybe showed up for that reception. And we had about 80 people in the back of the 410. If, if you've seen our back studio, it's not the biggest by any means. So 80 people is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were really supportive of, I think, the the very visible effort and dedication, and, you know, and commitment to that type of project. So, what what is what was the point of that? Why 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 do that? I was getting pretty pissed off, um, which happens a lot. And then I'll do something out of spite, because you know. And at that time, like becoming director, it was everything was so like. You know, looking at, like, other organizations and even thinking about, like, the whole, like, museum sector, it's, like, everything is so viewed, like, on the Internet, and we totally are losing connection of the actual artists making the work. And it's, like, we select work to be in museums or galleries just by if it looks good or not, but we're not even really considering who the person is that made it and, like, the reasons and the stories. Like, if we knew those stories, it would probably help us engage more with the work, right? Same as, like, someone who writes music or writes a book. It's, like... You hear the backstory or their choices, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I totally have more of appreciation for that product that was produced. And we don't really get that when we just go into places and look at visual work. And so this was about connecting the the gallery or the organization or the director with the actual artists 
and being able to share those stories of why that person is making their work and um, their struggles and what they feel is successful and what makes them happy. And we interviewed people that were 16 years old, people that were 65 years old, and they all kind of answered the questions very similar. You know, it's it's about passion and um, self-expression and um, and some people who have, like during the tour, we interviewed these people and they've been making their whole, like sustaining their life on their creative practice, like glass blowing, tattooing, um, sculpture building, and they still didn't, they never defined themselves as an artist. They're like, well, this is, you know, I've never really thought of myself as an artist because I didn't get an education as an, I, I didn't go to school for art. And so you had these conversations and then the, someone who would watch these documentaries or hear about it online, they'd be like, well, th- that's what I think too of myself. Or like a couple of our artists during the documentaries, they talked about they really got into their art practice after um, the recession. They got laid off from their job. So they were at home. And then they, from that necessity, they started making things to sustain mentally as well as financially. And that's how they grew their practice. And I remember showing that there our film downtown Mankato. And we had a couple people from the cities that came to see it. And they had came up to me at there and they're like, oh, the artist, she said, you know, she lost her job during the recession and blah, blah. She goes, that, and um, the sculptor from the city, she, she said, that same thing happened to me. She goes, her story was my story. So it's like, it's almost like humanizing the artists and for us to connect more to each other because we all have similar stories. It's just sometimes we just think, oh, they're over there, they're over there. I'm That's just doing my own thing. When you thing. say when you learn more about the story behind something, you appreciate more because that... <clears throat> It's like you hear a song that you've mm-hmm. heard a few times, but then you hear what what, what inspired that song. Yes. Suddenly you're like, oh, that's my favorite song now. Yep. <clears throat> that's interesting. I, I So, and not having seen all of the um, Project Bike mm-hmm. videos, but that that's what the first one did. It kind of brought that idea. Yeah, that whole idea and that framework. Uh, and just for what Project Bike could be, because like I said, I got done with the first year and had no de- desire to do it again, because I, I, I was really messed up mentally and physically when I got home because I just wasn't prepared. It was uh, just really hard physically? Yeah. It drained you? Okay. Yeah, and emotionally. Like, a lot of crying. <laughs> a lot of, like, heat exhaustion, like, pushing your body to the max and not knowing what to do. Well, why were you crying? Is it- it's a lot of it's a lot of stress, stress because I'm having to, like, organ. you're having to be on the road, and then you have, even though you're tired, you still have to get there at a certain time because your filmmaker's and your artists are waiting for you. So then it doesn't matter if you're tired or sore. You have to just keep biking. So you might, like, if you, like, you've ever been, like, in a situation where you're kind of, like, starting to mentally break down, but you have to, like, keep going because it's, like, I have to finish. Or, like, people mm-hmm. run marathons and they're just, like, I can't do this anymore. And, and they, but they have to finish it. You know, like, so it's kind of like that. Um, and you're having to organize people and everything and social media. And it's just a lot to take on. Because a lot of people think, like, oh, it must be fun. You just, like, bike all day. And it's like, well, no, we're having to, like, constantly communicate, make sure that we know where we're at, where our filmmakers are at. We have to stop and do shots. We have to make sure we're communicating with our artists on the other end and where we're camping and make sure that we get there. And so it's not a vacation. It's no, not it's, a, we're, you're working so it's the not whole a time. Ride. No. No, 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 no. And there's amazing, like, you know, that next following year, I decided to do it again with the support of True Facade, um, Ryan Sturges and his uh, partners. But then I brought on Kyle Zeisler, who was my writing partner for the rest of the tour, um, and Kyle kind of came in and provided what my the strengths to my weaknesses, you know. So um, basically, figuring out directions, handling bike maintenance, body maintenance, because he's an athletic trainer. Um, and so that was it. Allowed my bre- my my brain 
to not stress out as much to where the project could just be more successful as a duo versus just one person. Kyle from Mankato? Uh, he's originally from Bismarck, okay. North Dakota, right? Yes. <laughs> I always forget, and he hates me for Crazy that. Capital. Like, sometimes, sometimes I say South Dakota, and he gets really mad at me. Because you don't want to be from South Dakota, I guess. That's a thing. Yeah, know. they're so different. The rest of Dakota, I mean, you know, night and day. Night and day. But um, yes. And then Kyle came here to go to MSU. Okay. So that's how he wandered into this area. Okay. And then how many years did Project Bike Five years. go on and it's over? Uh, as of, the touring's over as of now, but our full-length documentary film is premiering October 30th at the Twin Cities Film Festival. Really? Yep. Well, I it asked, is still I going on. on. It's I still happening. I asked you to come on Feepcast uh, <laughs> at, at the right time. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So all that, that was kind of the main goal with all these years because we, with our documentaries at the end of each year, it was like 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Um, and we never, we, we never, well, we could never afford to make a full length film. Let's just be honest. Um, and we, like within 30 minutes, you can't tell the story of Project Bike and 10 artists. It's impossible. Right. Um, so we made the goal a couple of years ago that we were going to end touring, uh, which was good because we ended in 2019. The next summer was COVID. So we probably wouldn't have even really been able to do it successfully. So maybe the universe was telling us something. Um, and so then we just focused on putting together our filmmakers that we brought on this production company um, to basically create this full length film telling you know the history of Project Bike. Uh, as well as Kyle and I talk about our relationship and why we did that together and emphasize more on what it means to tour through Minnesota and our 10 artists that we worked with that last year. And yep, and now it debuts at and then Twin Cities Film Fest. And you're Crazy. not doing it again? Not as of right now, unless someone would like to pay us or, uh, to do uh, the bike tour. Has anyone else offered to do the writing for you? I mean, can, no, can, it's my project and we're still doing wanna, it. You want to, okay. Because everyone's like, oh, has it ended yet? Has it ended yet? And it's like, we don't know because we have a whole nother sect. You know, we last winter we had that big exhibition in the uh, Minneapolis St. Paul airport. We had a big project bike retrospective in the largest display cases, the largest showing area in the airport. There was a project bike retrospective last year. And for people who haven't been to the airport, there's various like displays. Yes, they have a huge, huge exhibition program now at MSP. It's amazing and that's visual and performance wise like music and dance in the airport it's great i'm really fortunate that our state provides that um so we had that huge exhibition that was great um and then right now we're in the final thing of you know our our final film debuting so we'll just see where that leads us next so even though the touring isn't happening right now you know the story is still being told um, just because we've had the option of telling the extended story versus just the brief little little bits that we've done in the past. So after it debuts at the Twin Cities Film Festival, will people be able to see it around here somewhere? Are you going to have a local? We're still waiting to figure showing? that out. Because right now we had um, we had to premiere it at, like if you wanted to be part of the festival, you had to premiere it there. Mm-hmm. So you can't show it a bunch of places and then go to them. Um, so we're kind of just waiting how that all goes because... You don't know, right? And then we'll see what our options are. If people want to still view it through the film festival, you can stream it online. So you, obviously, it's like you buy, same as you buy a ticket to go there in person. You have to pay for it to see it online. Um, but that's an option as well. Um, yeah, so that's just something that we'll have to announce, you know, at the end of October here, what's going to be the 
the next step for showing it. Obviously, I'm all about accessibility, so I want the film to be able to be seen, especially here in its kind of home base mm-hmm. of southern Minnesota. So that's ideally the plan, just nothing defined yet. All right. Well, let me transition from uh, Project Bike here to who who you are. Mm-hmm. Where, where are you from? I am originally from Litchfield. Litchfield. Minnesota. The big, town. The, the big town of Litchfield. Where, where is that? Um, it is west central of the state. It's in between uh, Hutchinson and St. Cloud. If you kind of know over by Wilmer, Minnesota. Yeah. yeah so kind of a, it's about like 6,000 people. Kind of a small dairy farm. Sparbo eggs. Do you, do you get back there much? Um, maybe once every, maybe once a month, maybe once every two months. You know, my parents still live in Litchfield, mm-hmm. um, but usually they'll come to Mankato just because there's more things to do. Or I'd say come to Mankato. They come to visit you? There's nothing to do in Litchfield. Check out the For gallery? Me. Oh, yes. My, my parents do like to come to the shows. Um go to the state parks and all of that stuff but yeah and they you know they, they got to come see the dogs got to hang out with the dogs yes it's an important thing for people so where'd you go to high school <laughs> litchfield high school the same high school as my dad do you like it there <laughs> no <laughs> was um i was really fortunate i had a really amazing group of friends i will say as a <coughs> excuse me young female who was really into punk rock music and dyeing my hair, very typical, stereotypical, you know, late 90s, early 2000s um, kid. I I don't know. I just, like, really struggled. Like, I came into middle school, and it was very weird. Because I came, I my from first grade to fifth grade, I went to a private school that was very small enrollment. And then they put us in public school, and that was a very hard transition for me, just being in a big, bigger population. Um, and I felt I, I, w- I never worked good in a big classroom. I worked better in a small classroom. And I worked better with like working with my hands and more visual things, which they didn't really have classes like that. Um, there was one art class. And then I didn't really like middle school. So then when I got into high school and I got a driver's license, I had a tendency of just not going to school or going to school and then leaving school um, and then just being really sassy a lot too. I had a really bad attitude, which obviously carried into my 20s, which uh, we learned. But um, yeah, and I just, I had a lot of truancy issues and that led into um, just then like issues with my family and just, I don't know, I think I was just a really unhappy person uh, or a younger person. I think. What do, you, what do you think was behind that? I think I just, I don't know, I just didn't feel challenged. I didn't feel there was, I don't know, because I was doing bad in school. And when you're doing bad in something, you kind of just like don't want to do it, right? You just like you just got poor grades. I got horrible grades. I barely graduated high school, and because I just wasn't, I wasn't. I, I don't think I was like really like my brain wasn't activated. Okay. In any way, like I guess we had some art classes, but again, they were very like, I don't know. They they didn't really like challenge you. Uh, I took a lot of like automotive classes and industrial tech, like woodworking, because that was the only other hands-on classes we had. But that was with all guys which is very weird for the, as like a six-year-old girl to take, the dem- like the dynamic is just like very uncomfortable. Um, so that was kind of weird too. I don't know, I just like, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, when you like, you don't really work well with your surrounding, it just affects your way of thinking and your actions and stuff like that. And 
yeah, so I just never had a good experience, and I just wasn't a happy young person. And uh, but yeah, I, I luckily I did graduate high school. Again, I don't even know how I graduated high school to be honest, but thank God I did. And uh, at that time, again, like thank thank the Lord for my mother and her patience. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't want to go to college. And she had just like ple- like pleaded and pleaded with me, like, please, you know, like apply for some places. I applied for MSU here because my older brother went to MSU. Uh, I forget, I think like construction management, you know, so basically the same thing my dad does. And I uh, applied for MSU and uh, a couple of community colleges and things like that. And I didn't get into any of them because my grades were so bad. And then I also took, well, when I was in ninth grade, they gave us like an aptitude test like to see where you were at. And I did really bad on that because I'm really bad at test taking. And so then I really was, I wasn't allowed then to take certain like math classes or science classes. So I've taken one algebra class. I've never taken a calculus class or anything. And I think I took like a biology class, but then I've never taken chemistry or any, I've never taken anything beyond just a very simple. So then when I went to go take my ACT, I did horrible on it because I didn't really have that general knowledge because I was just put in like study halls or I was put in a couple of classes with um, kids that had um, kind of like more like learning barriers. Um, so it just like that also kind of confused me on why I was put in these other oh, did you classes. Feel like you were, did you feel like you were one of like? I just feel like the, everyone learns differently, and if it was if you didn't take this test really good, but did you really, feel like they were they were telling you you're not ever gonna yes be anything? So yes, you're gonna be. So we're going to put you here because that's easier for us. And that's why I've always had a little bit of jaded ideas towards the school system. I think because that and that's and the reason of my experience there is because that now is like the class that I teach at MSU is because of the experience I had when I was younger. And so basically I went to apply for a couple of colleges, even just community colleges. I got denied by all of them. And I was like, I think that's my first lap of like of reality. I was like, holy shit or holy. I was like, so my choices from right like my high school years is now affecting my adult life. Like that's, uh, you know, that's pretty big. And then um, I, luckily enough, I reapplied on academic probation for MSU here and MSU accepted me. And, you know, your first year, if if you come here, you have to be put on academic probation. So if you do kind of bad at all, they just kick you out. Mm -hmm. So I came here and my first semester, I got a 4.0. Oh. Cause I was in a, I was around creative adults. Um, I was taking theater classes and I was taking art classes, um, which having those positive experiences helped me feel confident in just like my other general classes that necessarily weren't like, you know, arts and humanities base. Um, And I just like really excelled. And I was like, oh, so I am capable of doing things and being successful and like being like in an arts programming or arts program with creative adults that are making money creating things so I think uh, you know thank gosh for MSU you know and you know or else I don't even know where I would have you know wandered off to Um, and now obviously my idea on the education like being an educator has totally changed I teach at MSU here now uh, and I teach a course in the elementary education department um, teaching K through 12 future teachers who are not art teachers they're like science history l ed or not l ed but like you know first grade or second grade and 
um, teaching them how to bring more creative curriculum to their classroom, how to bring bring more like hands-on techniques into classrooms. So if you have a kid in a science classroom that needs to work with their hands or build something to um, retain the information or to learn something, those teachers need to be able to identify those kids and adjust how they present the information. So mm-hmm. that child that learns more hands-on gets the same education as the kid that can read the book, memorize it, and take the standardized test. That's the way we need to be thinking about education nowadays. Because I knew if maybe I would have had that, I would have been more successful as a younger person. Was there anybody in your childhood who like really inspired you to be an artist who like, you know, maybe told you you were you were maybe this you could be good at this? Not that I can remember. I never really, I remember as a, like um, painting a little bit when I was younger, um, like when I was in high school, my mom used to buy me like, she wouldn't buy me canvases, she'd buy me like tag board because it was like really cheap, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and, and like, you know, like paint from Pomida, you know, when Pomida was still a thing, uh, and like the craft paint and I do paintings on that and then I'd have to paint over it and paint again because I only really have so many tag boards my mom would buy me. Um, but it was never, maybe until I was like a senior or something that people were like, oh, well, you kind of, you have some artistic talent, blah, blah, blah. But then what is that? That, you know, someone could be good at basketball and they're like, oh, you're really good at basketball. It doesn't mean you're going to be like in the NBA kind of thing, you know? And um, yeah, so that really didn't come until later life. And neither of my parents are in the creative field. My mom was a computer programmer. My dad was a construction worker and very work centered human beings and I, I and I I grant my leadership and work ethic to them because some people and they say this to my parents they're like which is just horrible they're like where did your daughter get her creative or your daughter must have got her creative genes from somewhere else or something <laughs> and then of course that makes my father feel horrible yeah. and because um, he's very if we're going to define you know the idea of like the blue collar man mm-hmm. you know and uh, and I and then I always say I was like well you know what I gained I gained you know strong work ethic and mm-hmm. leadership and providing and self sustaining and I think those are just as important as creative genes yeah you know so so um, at the four ten project you you do a lot of work with kids yes why do you do that <laughs> why, why, why do you hand over what could be like you know your creative space and doing your important work to a bunch of kids who are going to... A bunch of young ones, huh? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, looking back at my own life experience, um, because that, again, really drives a lot of things of who I am now. I always think back, again, I grew up in a a way, way, way smaller town than Mankato, uh, again, a long time ago. So the idea of arts and culture in communities wasn't wasn't a thing, unless maybe you lived in Minneapolis, right? Um, And I always think if there was something like the 410 or public art, or an adult, you know, or I don't know, or something you could go to just to like paint, even if it was kind of like kitschy stuff. I just always think like, what if I would have had something like that? Would, how would have that changed my experience um, about like my own personal impression of myself uh, as well as my community? And so I, we specialize in working with youth, um, all youth obviously, but youth that um, are maybe st- struggling with, um, insecurities in some way or maybe they have really creative talent but they don't really think it's worth anything or maybe they've been told it's not worth anything um, we work with young people who have um, I don't know like deal with um, physical barriers 
um, that maybe the normal classroom doesn't really allow them to make the things they want to make because maybe they have limited access to something. Uh, we work with kids who are really creatively driven that hate taking art in school. That's their least favorite subject because they have to sit down and make the exact same thing as the person next to them. And they want to be challenged and they want to be able to explore their ideas. And, uh, uh, and, that's, and, and I understand being a teacher, there has to be some little bit of conformity, a little bit to, you know, to get through the day. Um, but with those kids that need that creative challenge, maybe they don't get it at home because maybe their parents aren't artists similar to mine. Um, and so we open our doors up to those youth to provide them with the space to kind of unleash that creativity, but also talk about uh, their goals within being an artist when they grow up as young as 10 to 12 years old. And um, they get to be around creative adults that hopefully encourage them and uh, around artwork, too, that they can learn how to appreciate and admire and um, learn how to discuss visual work ideas and so that's our main emphasis is giving a space to those kids and those kids that maybe aren't you know after school when they're just kind of wandering the streets um, looking for something to do we do we've done out um, after school programming again to kind of give a space for them to be like doing something constructive even though it's not like maybe the most amazing thing to them but it's still giving them ownership uh, in something or you know and so that's what we try to emphasize on with our, our young people so who inspires you a lot of people inspire and me. And I'm not saying like just like artistically, but like I mean, who I mean, I think I'm, leadership wise. Leadership wise, you know, there's a lot of you know mainly women, obviously, that um, really inspire me. Again, I, really, I think I think obviously I really respect the idea of work ethic, uh, as well as someone who's really able to work hard, but still able to connect with human beings one on one. So it's not about just like work, 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 pay all the bills. We have the most money, go home and that's it. But it's like people that are able to balance those things of like being human uh, and then also being successful in your own personal way. And like obviously my boss here at MSU, Gina Wanger, uh, she leads the art education program. She inspires me. She's great. Is, is she not? I right. Gina. Gina's amazing. Um, she's the one that basically got me to the, the class that I teach today, you know, and gave me or like basically was like, Dana can teach this. I don't have an education degree at all. So for them to come to me and be like, we want you to design a course in, in, in LED. And, and I'm like, what? And Gina's like, you can do this. Like, you know what you're doing. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, um, and kind of always just been like, oh, helps me with my backbone a little bit when I'm feeling a little like, oh, I don't think I'm really fit for this. I don't think I'm in the leadership role for this. She's always like, you got this, you got this. And then um, Joan Vonderbergen, who used to be uh, head of creative placemaking at the Hennepin Theater Trust uh, in downtown Minneapolis. She, very similar to Gina, huge leadership roles, but can connect with people so intimately one-on-one like on a street level to in like the boardroom it's insane um and joan led all the big like the bob dylan mural on hennepin ad she led she led that whole project um she's let me job shadow her a bunch and she provided project bike with a bunch of opportunities in the twin cities and with hennepin theater trust and so again women that just inspire me to be truly who they are but also still able to make an impact and be in leadership roles but not give into the system if that makes sense so where do you think, uh, we're going to be uh, wrapping up here, but mm-hmm. where, where, do you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? What, what'll in 10 years, I'll like be 45. For yeah, what will success look like for you? Um, I have goals, 
obviously. Um, I don't know. I used to be really obsessed with that kind of timeline, like, oh, five years from now, six years from now. I don't know. I, I, I still, I don't know. Like, I'm really, I don't want to use the word obsessed, but it's a, it's a big goal of mine to really stay true to who I am. So I feel like I'm going to be 45 and, like, still look like this and still do random ass things and, like, get on my bike. and. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. And I don't know. And I think it takes a little bit of guts to, like, get to a certain age and still be a little renegade. Um, but I don't know. I, I want to push my um, my knowledge and how I educate about, you know, the shifting of the school system and getting more creative curriculums in the classroom. Classroom. I want to emphasize in that. But um, I don't know. I want to grow within, like, my consulting work and um, bring more, like, arts opportunities to rural communities. Because, I, again, I think it's just like, oh, what if we had more? Like, what if I go back to my hometown and – obviously find some sort of money to do a mural or do some sort of programming with, I, you know, again, I went to a private Catholic school. There's no art there, right? And so that's five years of a kid's life that they have really no interaction with art besides like cotton balls and popsicle sticks. So it's like, what can I do to get that ball rolling in these small communities for maybe other people then who live there to kind of then continue that? Because um, those things are important to culture even, you know, in a town that's 5,000, 2,000, and not just small cities like Mankato or, you know, the, the metro. That's what I want to do. I want to focus more on rural arts engagement in rural communities, creative learning in the schools. I don't know. I got lots of things. And just hang out with my dogs. Well, good. Well, um, I, for one, am glad you're around. Um, you do good work. The Fort is fantastic. It's one of the things that makes Mankato a great place to be. Um, and thank you very much for coming out today. Yes, thank you for having me. a pleasure getting to know you a little bit more. I know, like I said, I've talked to you many times, mm-hmm. but today is the first time we've talked at length. Cool. About you. <laughs> who you are. My mom says my favorite subject. It's always about, uh, you know, we're always talking about whatever you're hanging up at the gallery or, you know, that kind yes. of thing. But today it was just about you, so it was, it was nice. Cool. Um, thank you. Yes. All right. Take care. Yay!